Dr. King said that love is the only cement that can hold this broken community together. And when I am commanded to love, I am commanded to restore community, to resist injustice, and to meet the needs of my brother. And I would add on to Dr. King, our sisters and our relatives. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all. I'm very grateful and honored, um, a little embarrassed <laughs> with all of the kind words and the warm welcome this morning. Let's look to our scripture for today. I'm going to be reading out of Luke chapter 19. And the word says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, Salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Word of God for the people of God. And everyone say, thanks be unto God. You know, Jesus comes to this world authoring radical belonging. I love it that Jesus calls available people over able people to be his followers. And like many of us, he spends a few years frustrating us out of our minds as he invites us to follow him. If you look at the disciples after they follow Jesus for three years, they get to the end of the story and they're kind of asking Jesus some of the same questions that we might find ourselves asking Jesus. At the end of the story, the disciples come up to Jesus and say, is it at this time that you're going to give us the power to stick it back to the Romans? <laughs> because that's really what we're all trying to figure out, right? How can I get enough power, enough agency, enough control to be able to stick it to the people who are sticking it to me? And Jesus looks at them, recognizing that they're asking him a question about power, and he responds with a conversation about power. Luke writes this in his second letter Acts, he says, recording the words of Jesus, it's not for you to know the, the times that the Father said in his own authority, but since you want to have a conversation about power, I'm going to give you the power to die to yourself. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the place where you are, Judea, the place you got to go, and Samaria, the place you avoid, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you want to talk about power? The root word that we get for witness comes from the Greek word martus, where we also get the word martyr. 
Jesus says, I'm going to give you the power to die to yourself so you can become alive to my purpose in the world. You see, in the face of challenge, many times with the polarization that we're all experiencing, the problems of our world, we're thinking about what is it that we need to do? How do we get enough power to try to have a sense of safety and comfort where I live? But I think the wrong first question is, what do we need to do? The right first question is, who do we need to become? And how does that becoming inform for us a kind of doing that currently is not within our reach? And in a moment like the one that we're in now as people who are following Jesus and are seeking to join God in the world that God is making, I would say for us that the call for us in this moment is to lean into radical belonging, particularly where we are co-creating with the perceived other to widen the circle of human concern. In essence, radical belonging is about how we work across difference with those we see as enemies while they are actively working to create a world that does not include us. Everybody take a deep breath in and let that out. But the call to radical belonging was not authored by me. It wasn't authored by my mentor, John Powell at UC Berkeley. I argue that the call for radical belonging was authored by Jesus the Nazarene, the Palestinian Jew that lived on the underside of the Roman Empire, that called for us to think about how we widen the circle of human concern to include both those who are oppressed and those who are engaged in the oppressing. In this particular story, Jesus arrives in Jericho. He's active in his public ministry where he engages this man in the story, Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus in this story is not just a tax collector, but we're going to go up a little bit. He's a chief tax collector. The tax collector in the Gospels is more than our local IRS agent. We love you, IRS folks, if you're in the room. <laughs> but he's a little bit more than that. He's also a Jewish person in this Jewish community who is colluding with the Roman occupiers of their region. He, and he was likely a he, sorry fellas, but he was likely a he, whose greed and selfishness enriched himself at the expense of his own community. In a sense, he privileged himself by aligning with the unjustly powerful at the expense of those who were persecuted and prevented in his day. And from the perspective of the Jews who were being occupied by Rome, Zacchaeus was the ultimate enemy. He was the person who was conspiring against their own community from within. And that's why it's interesting for me in this story that Luke writes about Zacchaeus with all the reasons that he could name Zacchaeus being the enemy, that while Zacchaeus was obviously the enemy, he was also looking for Jesus. That the person who I see as my enemy can also actively be looking for Jesus. The writer Luke, to me, challenges us to see Zacchaeus as more than just the threat he poses to the community, but also to humanize him and see him as redeemable. Say it with me, Zacchaeus was looking for Jesus. He was looking for him so much to the point that he climbed up a tree because conditions that were a part of his own life, his stature kept him from having proximity and visibility to Jesus. Now, we live in a society where it's becoming so easy to count folks out. 
whether it's people's participation in injustice, the subjugation of other communities, the lines seem to get drawn really clear about who we should see as our friend and those we should see as our enemies. But if we are going to follow this Palestinian Jew that lives on the underside of the Roman Empire, we must recognize that his teaching is calling us not to have a small circle of human concern that only holds those we agree with, but actually a wider circle of human concern that particularly has space enough for those who disagree with us the most. Jesus contends for a world where we love the Israeli child and the Palestinian child. Jesus' world calls for us to recognize that both of these children are worthy of defense. Jesus contends for a world where we love the centurion that is complicit with the Roman Empire and the Jewish servant that he's seeking to be healed in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus contends for a world where black lives matter and the lives of police officers are precious in God's sight. Don't get mad at me, get mad at Jesus. Believe me, I do very often. Because Jesus doesn't always agree with my politics. Jesus oftentimes is not massaging me when I'm wanting to push people outside the circle of human concern. Rather, I find Jesus looking at me square in the eyes, calling me to become a different and deeper version of myself. One who is willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do more than just give me inspiration and comfort, but actually give me the courage to make space for the person that I see as my enemy. So I want to lift up three invitations for us to hold, particularly as we lean into this idea of how do I actually love my enemy? We know Jesus calls us to love our enemies, but the question is, how do we do it? Well, let's use this story as our instruction for today. First, in the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus makes a point to see his perceived enemy. Jesus looks away from the crowd and all the things that are there to affirm his point of view and his lifestyle, and he looks up to see where his enemy is. Not to judge him, but actually to see him. If we are going to love our enemies, we must lean into the practice of being willing to see those who we identify as our enemies for where they are and who they are, not for where we want them to be and who we want them to be. Seeing them means that we're willing to look away from our own perspectives, to look away from our own ideals and our own very deeply rooted passions and being willing to see them in their perspective and their worldview. And that doesn't mean that we agree with the worldview of our enemies. Certainly for me does not mean that I affirm some of the worldviews and perspectives of those who've positioned themselves to me as an enemy. But what I do is I acknowledge their humanity, recognizing that the Spirit of God loves them as much as God loves me. And that somehow, even though I don't like all of my human siblings all the time, they still are my human siblings. And that there's no way that I can love the God who has made me while not loving my sibling who God has also created. Seeing the person that we think is our enemy or who has shown up as our enemy is the way that we love them. In the Zulu language, the word for hello is saubon. And it means literally, I see you. 
And the translation uh, for the response of Sikona, which is the response to Sawabona, Sikona means, and because you see me, I am now here. Lifting up for us that to see people and for people to be seen requires us to be engaged in this co-creative practice together. In service to creating radical belonging, I call us, as I believe Dr. King in his work did as well, to call us to think about not only troubling the waters of the world outside of us, troubling the waters where we see injustice and where we see othering and where we see people put outside the circle of human concern, but also to trouble the waters inside of us, the stagnant waters of our own hearts and minds that can cause us to believe that some human beings are just irredeemable and too far outside the reach of God's love. It's hard to do it when we're stressed out, stressed about political decisions, stressed about dynamics happening in our family. How do we join God in this work? It is the practice of seeing. It's the practice of resisting the forces that tell us that we must have a smaller circle of human concern. It leans into the practice of saying that when I see a narrative that is brought to me, I lean into the practice of seeing the humanity of the person who is not being seen. It means seeing the Palestinians as human, although our socialization here in America has framed many of us to only see Israelis as human. It means seeing conservatives as human, even though my political lens more easily sees progressives as human. It means seeing those who are bipping cars in Oakland and Berkeley. You know, I had to bring a little Bay Area nomenclature in the room. <laughs> it means being willing to see our loved ones that are engaged. For those of y'all that don't know bipping, look that up in Google. It means breaking into cars. But it means seeing them as more than those who are a threat to us, but rather our loved ones in our communities that are deserving of love. But it's not only about seeing, but the other practice is about allowing ourselves to be seen and to be present with one another in this challenge. The second invitation that I think the scripture points out for us is Jesus, not only does he look up to him, but then he tells Zacchaeus, I want an invitation to your home. Jesus seeks an invitation to the home of his enemy. Now, while that may not have been a popular thing of Jesus' day, Jesus shows us a profound principle that I believe we must adopt for this high moment of polarization. Jesus says that we must widen the circle of human concern to see our enemies, but we must be willing to seek an invitation to where they are. That I am not only trying to get you to come to my space, but I'm actually willing to come to your space. In 2019, a study said that 15% of Republicans said that the country would be better if the majority of the Democrats just died. 15% of Republicans said the country would be better if the majority of the Democrats just died. But 20% of Democrats <laughs> said the country would be better if the majority of the Republicans just died. Now, nobody's saying who's killing all these people <laughs> or where all of these activities are happening, 
But somewhere in our discourse, one out of five people in our major political parties have already signed off on genocide being the only answer to the stress they feel in our world. Everybody take a deep breath in and let that out. So the question of our moment that I believe is upon us beyond just, hey, should we learn how to love our enemy? Is how do we really do the work of seeking an invitation across our places of difference to create space to spend time with people who are most different from us? I've had to do it over the years by seeking an invitation into the places where police leaders were training police officers across this country while I was actively protesting against police violence on the street, spending time humanizing and breaking bread with police officers while then the next month I was going to jail in a protest, seeing the person who is supposed to be my enemy, but also seeking an invitation to be in community with them as well. But lastly in this scripture, I think the third shift that Jesus offers us is not just to see them, is not just to seek an invitation to where they are as a practice of how we love our perceived enemy, but it is also to host room in our own hearts, to hold on to the imagination that those who we see as our enemies have the capacity to change and become our siblings again. It's holding space in our hearts Y'all remember Motel 6? Well, some of y'all might. Remember they used to have that sign, we'll leave the light on for you. The question is, how do we host room in our hearts for those who might be on a different side of a scenario? Maybe it's in the places where we worship, the places we work, could be in our own families, but how do I host room in my heart? How do I become the prodigal father always looking for my prodigal son, my prodigal daughter, my prodigal relative? How do I ensure like Christ that I am always waiting at the doorstep in my own heart to welcome those home back into my life? That I trouble the waters of my own anger and frustration to make room for those who are different from me. You know, my dad grew up in the Jim Crow South as I prepare to close. He grew up in the Jim Crow South and I got a chance to go back with him in July to the town he was raised in. We drove around and I got a chance to see my father differently as he's entering a new period of his life with memory loss and things not being as accessible as they have been in times past. And as we're driving around and, you know, I'm getting a picture of this world that he lived in, a deep world of segregation, a deep world of apartheid um, that was real. You know, he told me a story some time ago that he met Dr. King when he was 13, 14 years old. And he told me, he said, you know, Dr. King wasn't the Dr. King you all know now. He wasn't some big figure. He, he said he was like a lot of y'all, little troublemaking preachers that were rolling around. <laughs> and he said a lot of people didn't like Dr. King. You know, we joke now because we say everybody says they march with Dr. King. And we say the only thing that they have on their side is that Dr. King is dead, right? Because everybody didn't march with Dr. King. Matter of fact, during his tenure, you know, only 12% of Christians felt positively about Dr. King. It's only in history that we can see the legacy 
and the prophetic work that he was doing. My dad said, we met him. He came to the school where we were. He said he brought up on the stage two mock-ups of the colored fountain and the white fountain. And he said, and he turned them around to us and showed us that we were drinking the same water as our white counterparts. He said, it wasn't until that moment that I realized we were actually drinking the same thing, not a sub-level of water. He said, my mind opened up. And Dr. King called my dad and many of the other kids to come participate in the student protest of which they did. He said, we went and we marched on the street with Dr. King. My dad's 13, 14 years old. And he said, we got detained by the police and taken down to the local jail and our parents had to come pick us up. So he has this very powerful experience. And then years later, my dad is drafted into the Vietnam War. Now, what's interesting about this story also is, you know, before my dad used to tell me this, like, story about how he left North Carolina and he went up to Washington, D.C. to be a bricklayer. And then he went to Detroit to, you know, be a part of the car boom. And I used to be like, man, my dad is this metropolitan guy. He's, like, moving all around the country. Years later, I found out he was draft dodging, you know. So I was like, hey, you should have told me the real story from the beginning. Yeah? <laughs> But he's like, yeah, I went to Detroit, and they found me there. So then I went to Kansas City, they found me there. And so that's why I'm in San Francisco, because this is where they caught up with him. <laughs> but my dad said, I didn't want to go to the Vietnam War because I was a student of nonviolence. He said, but then they told me that either you go to the Vietnam War or your younger brother Thomas is going to the Vietnam War. But one of you all is going to the Vietnam War. And my dad said, I couldn't let my brother go to the war. He said, I felt like this was the only choice I had, that I had to come become an agent of violence against the beautiful Vietnamese people in order to save the life of my younger brother. And so he went to Vietnam. And my dad said, we participated in some of the most heinous acts that one could imagine. Because people don't understand war when they propagate war. He said, the things that we had to see, the things that we had to do, he said, one of the things that we did is we had to burn villages down, chase all the elders and the children out of a community and burn the villages down. And he said, as I was coming into one village, he said, I started stepping in on an elderly Vietnamese woman who he said her name was Mama San, that they called in the community. He said, she saw me. And instead of running away from me, she actually ran to me. He said, and I didn't discharge my firearm. He said, I paused. And she motioned for me to put my head down. He said, and she whispered in my ear, Martin Luther King know you here? <laughs> Martin Luther King know you here? He said, and in that moment, she snapped me back to my reality. She took me back to the South. And here I was standing in Vietnam, and I realized that I actually did have another choice. So my dad became an unofficial conscientious objector in the middle of the Vietnam War. He said, we're no longer going to harm these Vietnamese people. So he decided, I'm going to bribe the people in the clock towers with marijuana and Johnny Walker Red whiskey so that they don't tell on us and we're going to go through these towns and no longer bring harm to the Vietnamese people. So the moral of the story is buy a lot of Johnny Walker Red whiskey and marijuana and this is how we're going to solve the... <laughs> This is Berkeley, so, you know. <laughs> but I think you pick up the moral in the story. My father thought he only had one choice, to engage with those that had been said to him were his enemies. My father was actually not the hero of this story. The heroine of the story is the elderly Vietnamese woman who saw my dad, saw an invitation 
to where he was because she was hosting room in her heart for my father to become who he actually was. And because of that, not only did she save the lives of the people in her community, but many more villages who did not know her because she chose in that moment to love her actual enemy. And it could be that the only reason that I'm here to tell you this story is because of the courage and I would argue the faith of this unnamed, unknown Vietnamese elderly woman. So friends, I say to you, as we think about the legacy and the witness of Dr. King on this weekend, that's not for all of us to have to do what Dr. King did, but how can we see those who've been set up as our enemies? How can we seek an invitation to where it is that they are? And how can we host room in our hearts so that people can find their invitation to come home? Like a good Pentecostal preacher, I've got to have one last word, which is this, when we were on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, 10 years ago as a part of the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. I remember we went to jail one time, myself, my brother, Mike, who's a pastor down the street on university, Dr. Cornell West, Jim Wallace from Sojourners, Leisha Sharon Harper, lots of different people that were part of that work, and we were getting booked into jail, and they had us handcuffed to walls, and so as we're coming in, Dr. West, Cornell West, you know, I don't know if some of y'all might be familiar with the way he talks. So he kept saying to, to the police officers, oh, thank you, good brother. Thank you, good sister. Now, they're, they're like chaining us, taking shoestrings out of our shoes. Oh, thank you, good brother. Thank you, good sister. You know, like handcuffed us. Oh, thank you, good brother. Thank you, good sister. And, you know, the younger, we're the younger ones, so we're looking at Dr. West like, this ain't no thank you, good brother. Thank you, good sister moment. You know? <laughs> and, and I remember my, my brother Mike said, Doc, why you keep saying, oh, thank you, good brother. Thank you, good sister, to these people. And he looked at Mike and he said, oh, good brother, good brother, good brother. <laughs> he said, always leave the light on because you never know when they'll come home. Let me say a word of prayer for us. Lord, we are in the work to join you to make this world better. There's lots of reasons why we can leave people outside of our circle of human concern. But we know that the only reason we are gathered here today and we have faith is because you brought us into your circle of divine concern. And so our prayer, Lord, is that you would expand our hearts. Help us see those who show up as enemies in our lives and help us host room in our hearts. Would you help us and do the work of expanding our heart that we may have room to see those who must be seen so that we can join you in the world that you're making. We love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.